Welcome to the 63rd A.W. Mellon Lectures in the Fine Arts. In this six-part lecture series entitled Past Belief, Visions of Early Christianity in Renaissance and Reformation Europe, Anthony Grafton focuses on the efforts of artists and scholars to recreate the early history of Christianity in a period of crisis in the Church from the 15th to the 17th century. In this third lecture, entitled Christian Origins and the Work of Time, Imagining the First Christians, originally delivered at the National Gallery of Art on April 13, 2014, Professor Grafton extols the religious imagination of the humanists who plumbed the early sources of Christian and Jewish traditions in order to write histories of the early church, producing unprecedented and radical visions of Christian origins. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for being here on this magnificent afternoon, a true testimony to Washington's status as the most literate city in the United States. (laughs) Once upon a time, snarky teachers knew the history of the church and had fun whenever they found a chance to put their knowledge to work. It's not easy to see the snarky teenager in the stern face of the very grown Thomas Platter, publisher of the very stern Institutes of the Christian Religion of John Calvin, the book that tells us all that we have fallen, we are damned, and it's our own fault. Nonetheless, Platter tells us that he was once a snarky teenager. Early in the 16th century, he and five of his friends stopped on the road from Zurich to St. Gallen. They would have been hitchhiking if there had been cars, but since there weren't, they were walking, to hear mass. One of the priests said, you're heretics. You come from a city that rejects the supremacy of the pope. Platter said, why do you think the pope is the head of the church? And the priest answered, St. Peter was pope at Rome and gave the popedom there to his successors. St. Peter, replied the snarky boy, was never at Rome. He pulled his New Testament from his rucksack and said, See, in the letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul greets everyone, but he never even mentions Peter. Well, the priest replied, when Peter met Christ outside Rome and asked where he was going, Christ answered, I'm going to Rome to have myself crucified again. The boy said, where did you read that? And the priest answered, my grandmother told me. (laughs) Platter's response was caustic. So I perceive your grandmother is your Bible. It would be hard to stage a more clear-cut or more dramatic confrontation. On the one hand, we have the priest, a priest in the vein that Erasmus liked to satirize, a transmitter of traditions, apparently as much oral as written. On the other, the young humanist, the sharp-edged philologist, Thomas Platter, the critic. The priest passes on a kind of inherited conglomerate of doctrine and story, a complex overgrown mass, rather like a, a gothic stone structure which has been overgrown by moss and ivy to the point that its outlines can barely be seen anymore. And the humanist arrives with his shears, demanding to know what the gothic structure actually looks like. The humanist reads Paul's letter against its grain in a very elegant way, taking the list of people to whom Paul does send greetings at the end of the letter as equivalent to the membership and officers of the Roman church in Paul's time, a very elegant piece of historical work. Well, a tiny pinch of salt is in order here. 
Platter certainly knew that there was an old, if not a biblical, Christian text that told the story of Peter's meeting with Christ. The Acts of Peter is an early apocryphal text from the second half of the second century, and it tells the story of how Agrippa, the prefect of Rome, plotted to execute Peter. Peter's fellow Christians persuaded him to disguise himself and leave the city, and doing so, he encountered Jesus, who said, well, since you are leaving, I have to go and be crucified in your stead which persuaded him to go back. This is, of course, the Quo Vadis story, the origin of, among other things, one of the classically um, funky American movies. In other words, the story that the priest told had roots in Christian literature as well as in oral tradition. In the Catholic world, it would continue to inspire believers, as so many stories not rooted in the scriptures do. You know, Nibble Karachi's wonderful version of it, an extraordinarily dramatic and beautiful rendering. But for a critical Protestant like Platter, the fact that the story appeared in an apocryphal text gave it no further authority than the grandmother's word of mouth. The Acts of Peter did not figure in the New Testament, and Jesus' confrontation with Peter had no more authority, accordingly, than any other old wives' tale. It needed humanist, seven humanists with seven brooms to, be, to sweep it away with the detritus of the Catholic tradition. Now, the meaning of this drama, as Platter retold it in his wonderful autobiography, is clear. Scissors cut paper. The young scholar who knows how to reverse engineer an ancient social network out of scattered references in a text written for different purposes puts the priest bound by the spider-webbed and tight traditions of his social networks and his church to flight. Modernity, as always, is on the side of humanism and print philology and discrimination. All one needed, presumably, was a history of early Christianity that embodied these qualities, a simple, truthful knowledge based on the real sources. If only it had been so simple. What is truth, asked just jesting Pilate, and wouldn't stay for an answer. Many Renaissance scholars asked the same questions as they created histories of Christian origins, trying to build them on a solid bedrock of sources. You may be surprised at some of the stories that they told this way. One of my favorite Baroque Roman scholars is Giovanni Battista Casale, a learned gentleman who flourished in the 1630s and 1640s, just the time when Poussin was in Rome, had a little museum on the Aventine Hill where he showed early Christian objects and Egyptian curiosa to visitors. He knew the catacombs and the ancient sites of Rome as well as anyone, and he set out in the 1640s to compose a history of the church which he described as a mosaic composed of texts and objects put together as original as he could make it. He would show that the heretics were wrong when they asserted that Catholic practices like the use of images in church, the seven sacraments, the veneration of relics were late and superstitious. Casale began his book with the cross. How could a Catholic begin with anything else? He described ancient crosses from his collection, two of which he illustrated. Um, one of them, this is, oh, I'm sorry, one of them is a uh, metal one with a very remarkable sort of abstracted figure of Jesus on it. He said that this, was, this had been dug up in an ancient church at Aleppo in Syria and sent to him. But then he went on to the truly dramatic point. He was able to display the oldest existing cross to show when the cross came into public use in Christianity. This illustration is 
the Thomas Cross, the cross that Portuguese explorers and soldiers found in a church in a suburb of Chennai, Madras, on the Coromandel coast of India when they reached there early in the 16th century. This was, so they believed, the cross that commemorated the martyrdom of St. Thomas, Doubting Thomas, who wound up as the apostle to India and was martyred there um, after building a small church. The cross was incised as a design on a stone, the stone on which the apostle had bled every year as he died. Every year, eight days before the celebration of Jesus' birth, the stone would turn black then blue, and then exude a great deal of a lovely liquid, which was cherished as a relic in its own right. Now, Casale had the best of sources by the Roman standards of the time for this information. The, the best informed of all the impresarios of information who walked the streets and piazzas of Baroque Rome was Athanasius Kircher, that wonderful German Jesuit who... who curdled up his gown to play football against the Dominicans, spelunked in the crater of Mount Vesuvius, helped John Lorenzo Bernini, or got in his way as he designed those magnificent complexes in the Piazza Navona and the Piazza of Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, and collected information as it came in from the Jesuits' information-gathering machine about everything from Egypt Kircher was the great interpreter of the obelisks of Rome and wrote huge books on what 1066 and all that would have called wrong but romantic interpretations of their hieroglyphic inscriptions. He also collected information from the Jesuit admission to China and published that as well. Extraordinary information. Kircher was always on the alert for material about the global spread of Christianity in its early centuries. For example, the Nestorian Christians of China. And it was in an early book, the book in which he showed, this rarely was a point about which Kircher was right, um, he showed that Coptic was the actual Egyptian language, the same language that had been written in hieroglyphs. It's in that book that with, in a characteristic digression, Kircher published The Cross of St. Thomas, which Casale reproduced in his book. So it's a terrific piece of the evidence for the global character both of Casale's church and of the ancient church that he was studying. Only five years before, at the other end of Europe, another great antiquary set out to reconstruct the church in its very earliest phase. Another dour-looking gentleman, Henry Spellman, who published this magnificent collection of the documents of the early English church. Spellman began this, tre this treasure house of texts with a reconstruction. He had given to him this plaque, a brass plaque. It came, he said, from Glastonbury. It was written in an archaic script, and it described the original church that Joseph of Arimathea built in Glastonbury when he arrived there shortly after the death of the Savior. You can actually see, as he pointed out, the holes where its fasteners were that held it onto a column in the church in Glastonbury. Now, as it was important to Casale to say, I got this from Kircher, it was important to Spellman to make clear that his information was absolutely genuine. And so he didn't have this plaque and its inscription redrawn. He actually had his printer lay it on the platen and print from the front from the actual metal plaque, which then appeared backwards. He then had to have it offset again so that it could be the right way around and people could actually read it. 
And once he'd done all of that, transmitting his information with such superb care, he reconstructed the original church of Glastonbury. Here it is, an image of the first church. The inscription gave Spellman the dimensions of the church so he could give its shape. Medieval sources explained that the Anglo-Saxons had built by plaiting vines and, and, and stalks together, so he knew what material the body of the church was from. A passage in the Venerable Bede described how a spark had flown up and made the thatched roof of a church catch fire, so he knew the roof had to be thatch. Um, as for the placement of the door and the windows, he said, I guessed. But what you have here, as ancient and as dramatic in its way as the Church of St. Thomas, is an icon of the first church ever built. Now, it's certainly possible that Thomas traveled to India as a missionary and died on a hill near Madras. But the stone that Portuguese Jesuits identified as his memorial was actually sculpted in the 6th or 7th centuries, and its Pahlavi inscription has nothing to do with Thomas himself. As to the Church of Glastonbury, Spellman himself admitted that the script of the Glastonbury plate is not old and from not more than 300 years before our time. If indeed it is that old, the story comes from dreams and legends, as if if he'd had air quotes, he'd have put them around the entire passage. There's certainly a message of uh, a, a proportion of joyous fantasy in his reconstruction of that Glastonbury church. What's happening here? Both Casale and Spellman were scholars in the deepest period sense, skilled and steeped in the methods of philology and the use of manuscripts. Both believed that history, rightly pursued, could lead you to the truth about the most important matter in the world, how Christianity developed from the tiny group of Jesus' followers to an imperfect and fissioning church that had nonetheless managed to span the globe. Why resort to such exotic and problematic evidence when writing the history of a church that had begun in the Holy Land and in Rome? Well, Christian origins are hard to describe for many reasons. They're still hard. Read any contemporary history of the church and you encounter pages and pages of throat clearing about whether the word Christian is appropriate, the word church is appropriate, the word origins is appropriate. And it's easy to understand why. Even apparently simple scenes and stories from Christian origins exfoliate under scrutiny. What seems obvious and prosaic turns into a bubbling mass of questions. It's as if the vellum of manuscript pages and the white paper of printed books somehow had morphed anachronistically into computer screens in which every sentence was a live link tempting the scholar to look at something else. Let me give you an example. Here is one of my own very favorite paintings from this museum, Poussin's wonderful Baptism of Christ, a marvelous symphony in beautifully coordinated colors with a wonderful landscape in the background. It's an absolutely lovely evocation of that scene, which owes a certain formal debt to the uh, evocation of it in the Vatican Loggia, that least known but by no means least wonderful product of the School of Raphael. You see the way in which the bodies interact in the same way, and some of the groupings are very similar. It all looks simple, so simple that even the all-seeing Anthony Blunt said, iconographically, there is nothing here that deserves comment. And yet, when the historians came to this scene, how different it was. 
Cesare Baronio, author of the great Catholic annals of of the history of the church, says, well, obviously, the expository method of a biblical commentator and that of a historian are different. But he also noted that no one would deny that I have to solve all the difficulties and knots if I'm going to clarify the history. And boy, were they difficulties and knots. I spare you the question of the order of the priests serving in the temple at Jerusalem, which is an easy way to go absolutely mad, and concentrate on one line, Matthew 3, 4. John the Baptist had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Doesn't sound a lot like Poussin's beautiful classical figure, does it? How did you interpret this if you were a serious reader? Did John really eat locusts? Was the Baptist an ancient Anthony Bourdain? The Venerable Bede, on the one hand, said locusts were edible, and someone he knew, a pilgrim who'd visited the Holy Land, had seen them being eaten, and other authorities agreed. But the earlier Christian scholar Isidore of Pelusium explained that the word for locust actually meant the tips of edible plants, so John had been a vegan. Baronio discussed both opinions at length before deciding that he couldn't actually decide between them. Isaac Casaubon, the great Protestant scholar, writing his magnificent attack on Baronio, of course, made fun of Baronio's indecision. Of course locusts were edible, he explained. Greek authority, Christian authority, and rabbinical authority all confirmed it. What set John apart from everyone else was not that he ate locusts. Lots of hermits ate locusts. It was that he only ate locusts with a little wild honey to flavor them. But then the secondary question arose. Baronio, following Isidore and a work ascribed to John Chrysostom, father of the church, wondered if John might have given the initial inspiration for the ascetic life of Christian monks by living so in such, in such a, a sparing way. Casaubon found this idea absurd. The text by Chrysostom was a fake. As to the food of monks, he said, let that be the monks' affair. It was perfectly obvious that John the Baptist had nothing to do with monks. Monks, look, said Kasabin, the irate Reformed Protestant, at the sybaritic way that monks live. That's nothing whatever to do with John the Baptist. And so it went, generating vast pages in which each line of an original source was fragmented, pulverized, put under the microscope and beaten into submission. A way of reading that by necessity tore every text apart, as readers of Baronio and Casaubon complained, so that they could no longer even remember what the original text said. It's sad. The supremely perceptive can see the world in a handful of dust. Sometimes it seems as if ecclesiastical historians could see nothing but handfuls of dust to throw at each other, and even the most moving scenes from the early Christian world. Worse still, there was no single early Christianity. For early Christianity, as I've already suggested, went global very quickly after the miracle of Pentecost when the apostles received the gift of tongues and could evangelize everywhere. Unfortunately, the book of Acts in the New Testament and the church history of Eusebius gave only a few details about the actual spread of Christianity, and that left room for the wonderful creative minds of medieval historians and theologians, powered as they were by a horror of any kind of historical vacuum. So, for example, Acts 17.34 states that while Paul was in Athens preaching, he converted one Dionysius the Areopagite who followed him. 
Now, in the late 5th or early 6th century, a Greek who had studied Platonic philosophy wrote a series of beautiful treatises on the hierarchy of nature in the heavens. He's the one to whom we owe our orders of angels, which he sets out with great elegance and and richness, on the nature of God, on the forms of meditation and negative mysticism that enable man to reach unity with God. He claimed to be the Dionysius the Areopagite whom Paul had converted, and his work circulated for centuries under that name. Well, that's complicated enough, but the real complication came just a little later, when the legend spread in France that one Dionysius, a Christian, had settled with friends on the Ile de la Cité in the River Seine in the third century. There they had preached the gospel until they were martyred. Beheaded by pagan priests on Montmartre, the mountain of martyrs, Dionysius picked up his head and carried it for six miles, preaching all the way before he finally died. You won't be surprised to know that he became one of the patron saints of France and the French. Great churches were built in his honor, above all the Abbey Church of Sujet of Saint-Denis. And in the ninth century, when Dionysius the Areopagite's books were translated into Latin and reached France, they were taken to be the work of Dionysius the Christian martyr, who was also Dionysius the Areopagite, in bold and wonderful defiance of chronology and geography alike. This became an intricate and deeply rooted part of French national and ecclesiastical memory. And memories in other lands were just as creative. The Venerable Bede, whose ecclesiastical history of the English nation is the only ecclesiastical history that I warmly recommend to you. It's a wonderful read. He was a great historian. Was also fallible. Early in the book, he tells the story of how Lucius, king of England in the second century, wrote to Eleutherius, bishop of Rome, asking to be made a Christian. He soon obtained his pious request, says Bede, and the Britons preserved the faith which they had received incorrupt and entire in peace and tranquility until the time of the emperor Diocletian, who, of course, began a persecution of the Christians at the end of the third century. Now, Bede derived this story ultimately from the Liber Pontificalis, the book of the popes, a cumulative record kept and embellished in the Vatican. But the passage in that, which he, re- which he relied on, actually rested on a misreading. There was a Lucius who was a Christian. He was, however, a Roman client king in Britio, in Syria, not in Britannia, in Britain. <laughs> You may remember, those who were here last time, that Bede is the first historian ever to have thanked a research assistant for helping him. It was the research assistant who went to Rome and brought back King Lucius. So Bede is also the first historian to make a ghastly mistake on the authority of that research assistant. Now, of course, this bare narrative was embroidered richly, like that of Dionysius in the Middle Ages. A wonderful letter of Eleutherius back to Lucius turned up. and, And in the 16th century, everyone loved this story. English Protestants quoted it, playing down the the role of the Pope to underscore that English Christianity was really, really old. English Catholics cited it, emphasizing the role of the Pope to highlight how important it was to stay loyal to Rome. Cesare Baronio defended it, and when objectors pointed out that no Lucius appeared in the Chronicles of the History of England, he pointed out that there were English kings beyond Hadrian's Wall. Lucius must have been one of them, not recorded in the annals. Learned Protestants unusually thanked the learned Catholic for making this point on their behalf. But no one used Lucius as imaginatively as Matthias Rader, a Jesuit in Bavaria, 
The rulers of Bavaria were engaged in the early 17th century with able help from the Jesuit missionaries and preachers in re-Catholicizing Bavaria, in which the Protestants had made major gains in the 16th century. To do so, they wanted to have shrines. They wanted to show that ground was holy, that Catholic blood had been shed there. And Rodder produced a brilliant book illustrated by Egidius Sadler in which he told the story of the martyrs of ancient Christian Bavaria. For example, Lucius, who retired from the kingship in England, moved to Bavaria and preached the truth of Christianity until he ended a happy martyr. So the beloved early Protestant king of England wound up a Baroque Catholic martyr in Bavaria. As you can imagine, controversy sometimes raged. Learned men argued about Dionysius the Areopagite. Lorenzo Valla pointed out that Areopagites were actually judges, not philosophers. Erasmus pointed out that Dionysius described a rich world of church ritual which couldn't have existed in the time of Paul. But Aloisio Lipomano said, but I saw so many wonderful pictures and miracles when I was in Paris. It must all be true. And Robert Bellarmine agreed. Only Lutheran heretics and dilettantes like Erasmus could deny that the work of Dionysius was by Dionysius. So there was always counterpoint to every point. Erudition could be mustered on every side. The record, in fact, became not more clear but less over time. And even the most swinging critical efforts, as example, the one that Baronio made to try to clear the early Christian record of the achievements of St. James of Compostela, invented by loyal Spanish ecclesiastical historians, ended in utter defeat as the, as the legends of James exfoliated for centuries to come. So what we see here is a a world in which the history of early Christianity was already so detailed, so rich, so thorny, that efforts to investigate it and retell its story were inevitably going to be plagued with difficulties. There were two needs, I think, that Christian readers felt with great urgency in the late 15th and early 16th centuries, and that scholars didn't think they could satisfy with existing resources. The first seemed simple. Christians wanted to visualize the world of the early church, to learn what it had been like to accompany Jesus in the Galilee, to worship with Paul, to feast with a small group of Christian brothers and sisters, to accept martyrdom. After all, the Holy Land still existed. Pilgrims still went, even after 1453, when the Ottoman Turks took Constantinople. And the images and records that they took and brought back became richer and richer in the 15th and 16th centuries. This marvelous panorama of the Holy Land, for example, was made by the artist Erhard Reuwig, who was actually paid to accompany an expedition to the Holy Land in 1483 and 84 and record its sites using the innovations of contemporary graphic art. It's an extraordinary job that he did, and there's a wonderful copy of this book in the Library of Congress's Rosenwald collection, probably others in Washington as well. So images of the Holy Land began to proliferate, and they were newly vivid and newly powerful. A whole generation of scholars, Thomas Noonan, Sor Shalev, Adam Beaver, have traced the rise of what they call sacred geography, and they've shown us that this reflected a new vision on the part of scholars, as men like Erasmus pointed out, that reading the New Testament in the light of geographies and city views became a new experience, more like watching its scenes take place than reading a conventional book. 
Unfortunately, the more one found out about the buildings and landscapes of Palestine, the less one seemed to know. Late in the 16th century, one of the Franciscans who controlled access to the Christian monuments, Bernardino Amico, published a wonderful illustrated account of the holy places to which he applied the new skills of the antiquaries and the, new, and the best level of visual art. The illustrations I show you here are by Antonio Tempesta. They're really quite wonderful. And as you see, you get very, very vivid evocations in this case of the tree to which Jesus was supposedly tied while waiting to see the high priest. Um, Protestants tended not to believe this. Amico promises that he's drawn the true and accurate portraits of these most holy places, and it is a marvelous book which gives a panorama of, for example, the Via Dolorosa that Jesus walked, which shows you the buildings in which great events take place. This is the Cenacolo, where the Last Supper was held. shows you marvelous images. This is a St. Jerome who appears in a marble floor portrayed to the life. They used extremely sophisticated perspective techniques. This is a rendering of the complex of the Church of the Nativity at Bethlehem. You saw this with very detailed instructions and a measuring rule, which you held up against your eye so that as you saw it, you would get the fullest and most precise possible impression of this complex. And yet, Renaissance antiquaries and travelers always have this little problem. They never quite tell you what they see. As Amico himself admitted when he illustrated the Holy Sepulcher, the bases of the pillars are of different heights and crudely made, and the pillars themselves are of different sizes, and in my judgment, they're spolia from older structures. But I've made them uniform. Partly I was just careless, and partly to embellish the design to make the Holy Sepulchre look better than it did. And indeed, the replicas of the Holy Sepulchre across Europe tend to follow this image in that way. But I did want to point it out so that the truth might have its place. So, of course, in some sense, contemplating the scenes of Jesus' life in the Holy Land or the scenes of Paul's life in Rome didn't really require accuracy. What might be better, a better means of understanding their meaning might be contemplation, allowing yourself to stand in a place and meditate with closed eyes on what had happened there, and Amico does recommend that. Yet, the Franciscans had a conscience or at least some Franciscans had a conscience. Um, but Paul Bonifacius, who actually clad the Holy Sepulchre in the marble that it has worn ever since at the orders of Philip II, realized that that had made the tomb very different from anything that had existed in the ancient world. So he went exploring, and on the Mount of Scandal outside the city of Jerusalem, he found the tomb, an ordinary set of Jewish tombs, niches carved in the rock, which, as he said, didn't look at all the way artists represented the tomb of Jesus, but probably offered a much clearer version of it than what you saw at the Holy Sepulchre itself. And for generations to come, Franciscans not only showed these tombs on the Mount of Scandal, they also said, these are a portrait a ritratto of the real grave of Jesus, an object that represents another object to the life in the way that a portrait does. Yet, 
Seeing Jesus' grave as it was could hardly make up for the fact that the scenes of his life and his death and the crucifixion had changed so much with the Roman war against the Jews, the destruction of Jerusalem, the Bar Kokhba result, the Bar Kokhba revolt. In the end, the more images came back from the Holy Land, the harder it was to imagine those scenes historically. Besides, those interested in the early church wanted to do more than look at pictures and buildings. They wanted to know what rituals the early church had performed, what vestments its priests had worn, how they administered the sacraments, to imagine the daily business of religious life as it had been in the purest early days of Christianity. In 1544, when Eusebius's history of the church appeared in the original Greek, readers hurled themselves on it, in the happy phrase of Benvenuto Cellini, like hunger on a loaf, hoping that they would learn everything they needed here. The copy that belonged to Thomas Cranmer, great Archbishop of Canterbury, survives in the British Library, and you can see him trying to read the text for information about the early life of the church when he reads in Book 5 that the covetous Bishop Natalius, convicted of his crime, covered himself in sackcloth and ashes, fell in the ground, wept, and begged forgiveness. He says, well, that's how the ancients carried out the sacrament of penance and confession. Very interesting. And at another point, doing the same kind of operation on a different passage, he cracks a little Protestant Donish joke. There's a letter Eusebius quotes uh, from one Dionysius praising the Roman church for its generosity and always helping other churches. An ancient tradition of the Roman church, says Cranmer dryly in the margin, which seems to have fallen out of use nowadays. For the most part, though, Eusebius could give readers only what he wanted to give them, lists of the texts which had formed parts of the biblical canon, lists of bishops of Rome and other important dioceses. To read the Bible and Eusebius together was not to have anything resembling a clear narrative of how the church had actually taken shape. Well, the ecclesiastical scholars I work on didn't solve all of these problems. Dionysius the Areopagite and King Lucius survived into the 18th century in some historical records for decades after leading scholars had deconstructed them. Yet they carried out some remarkable thought experiments. They did manage to offer some powerful interpretations of the history of the early church. Consider, for example, Guillaume Duchul a French historian and antiquary. We don't have a picture of him, but we have his signature on one of his books, which probably gives a good, as good an idea of what interested him as a, as a portrait would. He was an expert in the study of ancient coins recognized across Europe, and he used ancient coins, above all, to study Roman religion. From the coins, he took images of intact Roman temples and blew them up at large size. He also showed Roman priests at work, burning pinches of incense, wielding sacred implements, watching the sacred chickens peck their feed or not, and predicting the future. Nothing could really seem farther from Christianity than this image of Roman priests preparing to sacrifice a bull with the vessels for catching the blood and the implements for killing it. And that's what you would expect at first sight. For in the 15th century, when antiquaries really began recording ancient, ancient buildings and works of art in detail, many of them were interested only in the classical, what they saw. 
When Syriac of Ancona, that wonderful adventurer, someone everyone should know, he was the Patrick Lee Firmer of the 15th century, a man of enormous charm who had only to appear on the shore of a Greek island where anyone else would have starved to death to have a Venetian ship come by and pick him up and, and have the, the, the uh, commander sell him an ancient cameo. Chiriaco of Ancona is the first Western scholar to visit Athens, where he saw the Parthenon and made a sketch which an artist later reproduced. The only thing is, at this point, the Parthenon was a church, and Chiriaco saw none of the ecclesiastical additions. He saw only the ancient Parthenon behind them. All he looked for was the antique. Early antiquaries were able to recover the full bloody force of pagan sacrifice, the full sexuality of ancient religion, as in this wonderful priapic image from the Hypnoratomachia of Polyphilo, that late 15th century novel. There were those who feared a revival of paganism. In 1485, when the body of a Roman girl was found in a sarcophagus on the Appian Way, still fresh and beautiful, her nose still soft enough that it could be moved, Crowds swarmed to see her for three days until the Pope sent men to have her buried in order to prevent a revival of paganism. It's this form, this vision of the antique as radically opposed to Christianity, which often inspired those images, all of, all, which all of us know, of ruins appearing at great moments in Christian history. So at the adoration or at the, at, the, at the birth of Jesus, you'll see the classical world ruined, falling apart, being destroyed by the rise of, an, of a new religion. Or you, you hear in an engraving by Jean de Gourmand did that wonderful painting, the classical world looks a little bit more menacing over the Holy Family. Here Lazarus rises as the classical world falls apart. It's a vision which seems to suggest that classicism and Christianity are radically opposed, and it's one that's prominently displayed in 15th and 16th century art. Yet Duchul had more in mind than teaching his contemporaries how the Romans worshipped. He thought the Romans worshipped really beautifully in a wonderful and dignified way. He praised the elegance and dignity of their services, he praised the beauty and dignity of their garb, like this alba longa worn by a, Roman, uh, by a Roman priest carrying out a sacrifice. He noted that the Romans had done many of the things that Christians did. For example, he points out, we worship the lamb as a symbol of Jesus, so they worshiped the thunderbolt as a powerful symbol of Jupiter and saw it as we see the lamb, they saw it as a protection. Indeed, the more he looked at ancient priests, the more Christian they looked. Ancient pre Vestal virgins shaved their hair like Christian nuns. Pagan priests faced east to pray, as we still do. Over and over again, pagan temples had become Christian churches. Duchul summed up, pulling all of these threads of inquiry into one elegant knot. If we look with care, we will learn that several of the institutions of our religion were taken and translated from the ceremonies of the Egyptians and the pagans. For example, the tunics and the surplices, the crowns, the bowing of the head around the altars, the ceremonies of sacrifice, the music, the adorations, prayers and supplications, processions and litanies, and many other things that our priests use in our mysteries. Duchul 
argued that Christians were superior to pagans. The pagans hadn't understood the true reasons for these rituals, investments, and forms of conduct, whereas Christians did. But in its warp and weft, he argued, Christian religious life came from pagan religious life. So comparison, what began as a comparative inquiry, became a historical inquiry and revealed the unexpected origins, um, as many readers of Dushul have found them, of Christianity. In fact, Dushul was hardly the first antiquary to think this way. The 15th century specialist on ancient Rome, Flavio Biondo, who advised Pope Eugenius the Northland rebuilding the city, had also repeatedly noted that Christian religious practices resembled pagan ones, as he says, for example, when the sacrificing priests proclaim the omens are good and ask others to favor them with their mouths. It's like the moment in a Christian mass when the priest turns from the altar to the people and asks in a low voice that they pray for him. He compared pagan public prayers to Christian litanies, uh, pagan, pagan sacrifices to the dead for Christian services for the dead held in the seventh day after death. Now, in particular, what fascinated Biondo, and this is part of the background to Dushul, was ceremony. Biondo was an official of the papal court, and at the papal court, Christianity was a religion of ceremonial. This is a little bit later. Here you see the papal majesty taking place in the Sistine Chapel, and here you see the pope giving the chapel singers their, uh, their commission. What you can have to imagine here is an extraordinary world of color and ceremony. The papal diarists, the secretaries who recorded what the papal what the Curia did every day, give loving attention to the colors of garb, to the maneuvers carried out by priests and acolytes, to the beauty of particular services like the yearly Mass of the Rose, which the Pope celebrated holding a golden rose in his hand before giving it to some carefully chosen recipient. This world of ceremonial lent itself to comparison with pagan ceremonial as that could be reconstructed from works of art and glimpsed, on, uh, and glimpsed in pagan texts. Biondo never quite went as far as Dushul. He didn't identify pagan ritual as Christian, but the comparisons were sharp and punctual and made the point that there were multiple similarities. But the man who really laid the groundwork, and it's one of the most extraordinary and un most unexpected works of scholarship to play a role in the history of Christianity, was Filippo Beroaldo, the elder Filippo Beroaldo, not to be confused with the younger. Um, the younger studied Tacitus. The elder taught in Bologna, where he gave a famous course on a wonderful book, The Golden Ass of Apuleius. People often tell you that the novel was invented in the 18th century. This is, of course, absolute nonsense. The Golden Ass of Apuleius, written in the second century, is a terrific novel. It tells the story of a gentleman named Lucius who has some flirtation with magic and finds himself turned into an ass. After a picaresque series of adventures and experiments and a framed story of Cupid and Psyche, which is one of the most beautiful things in ancient literature, he regains human form at a great procession in honor of the goddess Isis by eating a garland of roses offered to him by a priest. And he, in turn, is initiated as one of her priests. Now, processions were, of course, a work of great civic and public art in the 15th and 16th centuries. Here you see Giovanni Bellini's wonderful record of a Venetian procession, the matchless public place. 
As Beroaldo interpreted Book 11 of Apuleius to his students, the story of the great procession of Isis, he had something like this procession before his eyes. As he says, as I read, I feel that I see and recognize the glory of all our ceremonies. And so again and again, he draws connections between the priests of Isis and their ways and the Roman priests. For example, he points out that the Romans didn't allow anyone to look out of an upper floor on a religious procession and tells us that the same is true of Christian processions in the 15th century. Mischievous boys and girls were not allowed to peep out of windows to look down on a religious procession in an irreverent way. Beroaldo tells us, after pointing out resemblance after resemblance, as I keep thinking about these customs of pagan cult, as the imagined procession hangs before his eyes, I come to the view that almost everything pertaining to the celebration of our rites has been taken over and transferred from the pagans. From the religion of the pagans come linen vestments, the shaved heads of priests, the turning around at the altar, the sacrificial procession. If this sounds familiar, it should. When Guillaume Duchul explained that Christian religion was pagan in its warp and weft. He was translating Beroaldo, though, of course, he gave no credit. Yet, uh, scholars do this, we still do. Um, (laughs) Yet there's an important difference. Beroaldo is even more optimistic about ancient religion than Duchul. He tells us that a man who is truly consecrated, like Lucius, who becomes a priest of Isis, puts off this irreligious life and is carried away by the prompting of the divine will through the supernal and infernal regions so that he sees and recognizes the things that the Apostle Paul saw and recognized. So paganism didn't just borrow, didn't just offer Christianity rituals. Pagans had the same kind of powerful religious experience that Christians did. Pagan votaries of Isis were carried, like Paul, to the third heaven. It's an extraordinary validation of ancient religion as a legitimate and rich form of religious life. Indeed, Beroaldo goes so far when Lucius composes prayers to Isis, and here you have a a nice Renaissance vision of what Isis looked like from Casale's museum. They were composed with such devotion, such dignity, such point that nothing could be spoken more reverently, so that Apuleius's petitions could be applied to the goddess of the Christians. Whatever is said about the moon or Isis could be said reverently and properly about the Blessed Virgin herself. It's this view that we see in some extraordinary works of art, like Mantegna's wonderful engraving with dry point of followers of Bacchus with a wine barrel. It's one of the treasures of the Metropolitan, where you see the two figures holding each other in the gesture of the Pietà, as if to suggest that there is some subtle but vital connection between Bacchic mysteries connected with wine and Christian mysteries perhaps connected with the intoxicating love of the Savior. Many of you will know that Athanasius Kircher was one of the great believers in the powerful in the powerful inspiration of pagans, especially Egyptian pagans. Here you see his wonderful apartment in the Collegio Romano of the Jesuits, now a very good liceo in the center of Rome. This apartment was actually uncovered not long ago, and it turns out to be slightly inaccurately represented here because it's only about seven feet high. 
Um, the, uh, but the model obelisks were only five feet high. They were found, too, and they're very handsome. So uh, the, these little figures of Kircher and his guests talking about Egyptian mysteries are added later. But it's in this environment that he brought friends to explain to him that the Egyptians had seen as clearly as any Christian the truths of moral and natural philosophy. That's how he interpreted the obelisk placed on the back of the elephant before the church of Santa Maria Sopra Minerva. Um, Some of you will know that the Dominicans were the order least sympathetic to such views. Often uh, in bad Latin, the word Dominicans, Dominicanes, rendered Dominicanes, dogs of the Lord, because of their zeal in hunting down heretics. It's no accident that Bernini placed the elephant holding up this pious Egyptian obelisk with its rear pointing towards what was then a Dominican house. and its trunk making an unmistakable Italian gesture, which is not polite. So Kircher, we know, was rather defiant in these matters, and I'm happy to have been able to find out that actually, though he gave Casale the cross of Thomas, Casale was reading Egyptian mysteries as Christian before Kircher. Here is a little hieroglyph misrepresented from the Lateran obelisk as being an anticipation of Christianity. And here you see communion, Egyptian style, as this vessel offers communion in both kinds under the cross. And it turns out that Casale was the church historian, retaining this wonderful optimistic vision of Christianity as a kind of revived and enhanced paganism, passing that on to Kircher and helping to inspire Bernini's wonderful complexes. I'd even argue that we can see a little bit of this in Poussin's supposedly simple baptism of Jesus. Who are those three gentlemen in the rear arguing Anthony Blunt thought they might be Pharisees, but it's hard to see them as Pharisees. They're not dressed as Pharisees. I rather think they're philosophers, <laughs> making the same gestures that would have been known to anyone in Rome, and that one of the philosophers is making the gesture of Plato, saying, this comes from heaven. Philosophy confirms this revelation. If I'm right, Poussin, as much as Kircher, was a believer in this vision of Christian history. The first history of the church that incorporated these views, the first book that made the argument that visual artists had made in much more powerful and vivid ways for over a century, is rather unexpected. It's written by an Italian contemporary of Erasmus named Polydor Virgil, and it's on the inventors of things. In 1499, he published the first version, which was an inquiry into the inventors of everything from obelisks to gunpowder and printing. In 1521, as religious debate had become acute, he published a second edition in which he applied the same method to Christianity, asking who had invented the various forms of Christian ritual, Christian behavior, Christian doctrine, section by section. It's an extraordinary book. The method is very simple. Every Renaissance scholar knew that if you wanted to retain what you were reading, you made a notebook. You laid it out in headings, and you copied excerpts from your sources under the headings. That's what Polydor Virgil does. Now, Renaissance humanists, like uh, American universities that play big-time sports, also knew that you can't expect people to really play by the rules. So, although they told everyone to make notebooks, they also made and sold published notebooks 
notebooks, which everyone could use. Thus, Erasmus's adages, a great collection of several thousand sayings with essays about them, so that if you had a friend who couldn't finish his dissertation, you could look up in Erasmus what to say and tell him, manum de tabula, take your hand off the painting. Virgil's work began as that kind of assembly of information, but because he directed it at the church, it became a powerful and important book. Polydor accepted the view that much of Christianity was pagan, but he added a second point. Many institutions of the Jews, as well as a fair number of those of the pagans, he says, came into regular use as customs so that we consider them ours. Now, artists and scholars had always known this. In another of the great paintings of the National Gallery, Van Eyck's Annunciation, we see the Annunciation taking place in what looks at first glance like a church, but isn't. It's a temple with Jewish scenes, scenes from the Old Testament that anticipate the sacrifice of Jesus, David killing Goliath, Samson tearing down the temple at the feet of the virgin and the angel, without Christian decoration, a clear and powerful argument that the church rested on and built on the temple. But Polydor Virgil, like many other artists, went much farther. He argued, for example, that the insignia of the priesthood, the sacred vestments used by our priests, were borrowed by the Jews. This is something that we often see represented in 15th and 16th century art. Here in Ghirlandaio's presentation of the Virgin, you see the priest got up in what seems to be very much the outfit of a Catholic priest with a rather old-fashioned Episcopal mitre. This is a vision which persists, even though Poussin didn't want to have a Jewish priest marrying Mary and Joseph in the second version of their wedding. Here in the first version, the priest who marries them is clearly a Jewish priest whose garb will later be worn in the same form by Christians. This, by the way, remains Catholic doctrine. Ask why priests wear what they do, and you'll be told this is what Jewish priests wore in the first century after the birth of Jesus. But Polydor went much farther, as good scholars always do. He was a defiant kind of fellow. Working for the papacy in England, he infuriated the English by informing them that they were not all descended from a noble Trojan named Brutus. And in the course of his inquiries, he went well beyond ordinary questions of vestments to say, when the priest turns to the people at the altar saying, Lord be with you, Dominus Vobiscum, this too is taken from the ceremonies of the Hebrews. Their priest turned around during the ritual, aspersing the blood of the slaughtered animal. The inquisitors found this too much to accept that the priest saying Dominus Vobiscum echoed the gesture of the Jewish priests, and Catholic editions of the work censored this passage. But, Christian, but Protestant ones did not, and Polydor's work marked a powerful statement that Christianity was not simply a re- reconfigured paganism, it was deeply Jewish as well. Polydor's work made a fantastic impact. Eighty-four editions of it in Latin attest to its uh, status as one of the best sellers of the 16th century, in addition to translations into every European language. And it was read by the people who wrote proper histories of the church. Flaccius Illyricus, the Lutheran church historian, learned from Polydor. He learned from Polydor that a church history had to have ceremonies and songs and rituals in it, even though one of his sponsors didn't want to do that. 
that, and he insists on doing that, as history does. He also learned from Polydor that a history of Christianity had to describe the Jewish religion, even though Eusebius hadn't. And he does both of those things at length in the first great Protestant history of the church, forcing the hand of Baronio to do the same in the first great Catholic history of the church. What did it mean to think of Christianity as having deep Jewish origins? Well, in the late 15th and 16th centuries, Jewish studies became fashionable in the Christian world. My favorite late 15th, early 16th century scholar is Aeneas of Viterbo, Giovanni Nanni, a wonderful man from, uh, from Viterbo who forged 24 histories of the ancient world, embedded them in commentaries of great elegance, and outsold the true ancient histories for the next hundred years. In 1494, he he became papal theologian, and in 1494, he presented a manuscript with Etruscan inscriptions, which he had invented, to Pope Alexander VI, the Borgia Pope. Here's the presentation manuscript, and here are the inscriptions. Um, Good luck to anyone who wants to interpret them. They're, They're not Etruscan. What's wonderful is that Aeneas, as forgers do, spreads fog everywhere by insisting that the inscriptions are Etruscan and Jewish and Egyptian and Erythrean. And in order to explain his own knowledge of these things, talks about how he had actually spent a few months with the Hebrews of Viterbo in their schools as a boy. Here you have a Dominican claiming that he went to Cheder with the Jews of Viterbo. In another passage, he says that he had, for the last five years, he spent the octave of Easter, the week from Easter Sunday to the week after it, talking about Hebrew philology with Jewish friends. This is a big difference from the situation in Trent that I described a couple of weeks ago. Suddenly, Hebrew knowledge seemed important. Egidio of Viterbo, that wonderful cardinal who opened the Lateran Council of 1512, his face pale with saintliness, which he had achieved by burning straw and inhaling the smoke. Egidio da Viterbo studied Hebrew with a learned Jew in order to understand the mysteries of the Hebrew alphabet. And as Christians gained access to Jewish sources and Jewish texts, early Christianity began to look different in a really radical new way. This is a book by a Catholic Hebraist, Angelo Canini. Um, there's a Protestant legend that only Protestants studied Hebrew. It is, of course, untrue. Canini wrote this brilliant little book in 1554 in order to talk about the Semitic words and phrases in the New Testament. He begins with the things that are still Semitic in the New Testament, as Jesus on the cross saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, Lord, Lord, why have you abandoned me, in Aramaic. But he then goes on to point out that many Greek phrases in the New Testament are actually Semitic, actually Jewish in their origins, as you can find by comparing them with rabbinical texts. Jesus, for example, says that it's as easy for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle as it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Ah, says Canini, that's a rabbinical joke. In Babylon, there was a famous rabbinical school at Pumbaditha. Um, You could perhaps compare it to Berkeley now. It was a place of brilliant scholars who occasionally had speculative ideas. And when a rabbi from another school thought a rabbi from Pumbaditha was going a little far, he would say, you must come from Pumbaditha, where you put camels through the eye of needles. So uh, Jesus adapting this is simply making a rabbinical joke. 
This copy of Canini's book belonged to Thomas Bodley, founder of the Bodleian Library and a great Hebrew scholar. And here you have him giving three exclamation points as he realizes that Jesus is speaking a kind of Jewish Greek. Emmanuel Tremelius, a learned Jew from Ferrara who became a Calvinist, a real Calvinist, his diary of how he educated two young princes, the most Calvinist thing I've ever read, edited the New Testament in Syriac translation and accompanied it with a learned commentary based on the Talmud in which he pointed out again and again that phrases that appear in the New Testament as the teachings of Jesus opposed to the Pharisees and religious and Jewish tradition actually come from Jewish tradition, as here where he explains that judge not lest he be judged is a rabbinical saying, not a contradiction to the rabbis. Elsewhere he points out that when the Pharisees attack Jesus and his disciples for gathering food on the Sabbath, they are actually contradicting rabbinical tradition, which always said that the need to save life, canceled the Sabbath. My favorite of all these texts, though, is the work of a reformed Hebraist, Palphagius, who in 1541 edited a text from the Mishnah, Pirkei Avot, the teachings of the fathers for students reading Hebrew. This is a wonderful text full of gnomic sayings. Where there are no men, try to be a man. Be not like servants who labor in the hope of a reward, if not now, when? And one of them really caught his interest. Yozi ben Yaezer says that you should cover yourself in the dust of your teachers. Fagius says, well, that's a Hebrew idiom. It doesn't mean let your teachers walk on you. It means sit at their feet and be a diligent student. He notes that the apostle Paul had said, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. That's exactly what Paul was saying. And then he says, when Mary sits at the feet of Jesus... She is being a good student. Look what comparison and contact between traditions can do for the religious imagination. No Jew could ever have imagined a woman as a student in this period. No Christian would have thought of Mary in these terms as a parallel to Paul. His mind and imagination set loose by contact with a new religious sensibility. Fagius could imagine early Christianity as a world in which women had a kind of intellectual existence, freer and more independent than Judaism or Christianity had normally allowed in subsequent centuries. That's a form of imagination which continues to develop. For the next century, Christian Hebraists will study the rabbis, will argue that any effort to build a true church of Christians has to rest on the precedent set by the rabbis that the only church God ever formed was the church of the second temple, which can be reconstructed from the Talmud. That's what John Selton explained at the Westminster Assembly when the English set out to build a new church. As his friend said, clergy would quote the scripture and he would say, perhaps in your little pocket Bibles with gilt leaves, the tradition, the translation may be thus. But the Greek or the Hebrew signified thus and thus, and he would totally silence them. Eventually, they became tired of being silenced and hearing Talmud lessons, and he stopped going. But it's still an extraordinary act of the imagination. Down to the late, even to the end of the 17th century, Christian scholars would insist, as Compegius Vitringa did in this marvelous book with its image of the synagogue and its Jewish priests still dressed like Christian priests, that the synagogue was the model of the church. 
that much in early Christianity, despite the vision of the Gospels, which puts Judaism and Christianity at radical odds, came directly from Christianity, that Christianity was in its origins a Jewish sect. This was a vision of Christian history that had no prototype, that radically altered the coordinates in which Christian history was understood, and which, for reasons we don't well understand, fell out of use in the 18th century to be replaced by different approaches and would not be recovered until the 19th and 20th centuries. A strange story. Scholars are as capable of oblivion, apparently, as anyone else. Who was right? We have no idea. The religious imagination is still a player in any study of the early church, as those of you who followed the recent revelations about the wife of Jesus mentioned in a papyrus which may or may not be a forgery. What I think is most fascinating here is not whether these scholars arrived at truth or arrived at falsehood, but the extraordinary richness of the journeys that they made in their searches and the occasional moments of imaginative illumination in which you see them orbiting outside the normal coordinates of early modern Christianity with an openness and a willingness to entertain radical ideas that still fill us with admiration and astonishment. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.